Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. The agriculture sector is a significant global source of greenhouse gas emissions. In 2019, the United Nations suggested eating less meat was a key step in lowering such emissions, especially less beef. Eating beef contributes to climate change, but the industry is also a component of food security and meeting daily nutritional needs. Understanding how beef consumption fits into our fight against climate change requires us to dig into Canada's cattle industry, how it operates, and how it fits into domestic and global food and ecological systems. While it's easy to just say, eat less beef, there's more to it than that. To sort out just what that entails, we ask, what do cattle have to do with climate change? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Dr. Tim McAllister, a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada and the host of the podcast, Cows on the Planet. Let's start with some numbers. So I'm using numbers from, from our world in data. Uh, it has agriculture, forestry, and land use responsible for about 18% of global greenhouse emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, of which roughly 6% is livestock and manure, uh, with beef and lamb having a higher carbon footprint uh, than other animals. Uh, one of the key greenhouse gases of concern here is, is methane, you know, which, which dairy and beef cows produce. I wonder if you can give us a sense of what the methane footprint of, of cattle is in Canada and um, then we can chase down from their other emissions. Sure. So ag agriculture in Canada re is responsible for about 8% uh, of total emissions that come from the agricultural sector. Uh, methane is a significant uh, source of emissions from the uh, beef cattle and dairy cattle industry. Uh, that's because methane is produced uh, by the animals in, in the specialized stomach they have called the rumen. And that rumen contains a microbial population that's capable of actually digesting the grass and forages that, that cattle consume. Uh, and it's really the microbes that produce the enzymes that break down that forage. Uh, the cattle themselves produce uh, none of the enzymes that are actually required to break down the plant cell walls within those forage. So they rely on the microbial population to do that. And one of the microbial groups within that rumen are what we call the archaea, are the bacteria that are responsible for the reproduction of, of the methane. And that's an important step in the fermentation process uh, because it allows what we call the electrons to transfer amongst the bacteria, generating energy that then can be utilized by the animal. And that's how it derives energy from the, from the forages that it eats. So they play a really important role, but a byproduct of that process is methane, which is eructated uh, out the front end of the animal, actually through the mouth, both uh, directly from the stomach, as well as uh, during respiration, which about 90% of the methane comes out the front end of the animal and about 5% or less comes out the back end of the animal. Uh, so, so methane has a global warming potential that's about 28 times that of carbon dioxide. So that means that one molecule of methane has about the same amount of impact on uh, towards global warming potential as what 28 molecules of CO2 would have. So it's quite a bit higher than carbon dioxide. But a big advantage of, of the methane is that it has a short, relatively a short half-life within the atmosphere. So it breaks down to actually carbon dioxide and water in the atmosphere. And that turnover time is about 12 years. Uh, so if you look at that compared to uh, carbon dioxide, which can exist in the atmosphere for thousands of years, 
Uh, that's why we're seeing such a focus on on methane as a mitigation strategy because to deal with climate change, if we're going to limit uh, warming temperatures to uh, one and a half degrees or less, we need to uh, focus on those short-lived gases because we don't have uh, 2,000 years to lower the amount of, of of those gases in the atmosphere. We want to do it quickly. And that's why the Global Methane Pledge, which I'm sure you've heard about, is uh, on the table now as a method of reducing methane. And most of that is focusing in the oil and gas sector, but there's a huge amount of research going on as well in the area of, of beef cattle, ruminant animals, and ways to lower methane emissions in the rumen as well. And so that, that accounts for, for methane. And what about carbon? Obviously, the, the industry itself emits carbon well, on top there's, of methane. There's two. If you, go, if you go across the livestock sector as a whole, there's two major greenhouse gases that arise from that. And that's, that's the methane and nitrous oxide is the other one. And, and nitrous oxide has even got a higher global warming potential, about 300 times that of carbon hmm. dioxide. And if you look at it, that, if you look at the split on that, it, it's about equal between methane and, and nitrous oxide. They're, they're pretty close in terms of the amount of emissions that are coming of those gases from the livestock sector. The nitrous oxide, though, comes from the nitrogen side of the equation, which is related to the amount of protein that's fed to the animals, as well as the amount of chemical fertilizer that's used uh, for fertilizing the feeds in that that the animals would then consume. Okay, so now I want to dig into sort of how we stack up globally. Now, you know, Canada is a, a fairly significant uh, global emitter of greenhouse gases per capita. We make up a fairly small percentage in aggregate, say about one point, uh, 1.5% according to uh, recent data. But we're still 10th in the world uh, in aggregate, and of course higher per capita than most. I mean, how, now how does the, the cattle industry in particular stack up compared to other countries? Well, it, a lot of that depends on on how you express the emissions. So, in in agriculture, we we make the point that you need to express those emissions per kilogram of product or per kilogram of beef produced, for example, if we're talking about beef cattle uh, production, because you know we would argue that foods are pretty important component of what we need to survive, mm -hmm. and uh, we'd probably give up on our oil and gas before we'd give up on food. And so, if we if we take it as a given that we need to produce food to uh, ensure food security and maintain humanity, then we want to produce that food in a manner that results in the least amount of greenhouse gas emissions per unit of food that's produced. Mm -hmm. So that's the approach that we're taking here, which is not exactly the same as total atmospheric concentration of a given greenhouse gas, right? And so in, in, if you look at the Canadian system, the beef cattle system as a whole is amongst the most efficient. We're in, we're in the top, easily in the top uh, 5% of, of nations globally in terms of our ability to produce a kilogram of beef with the lowest uh, carbon footprint possible. Okay, so I want to I get into the implications of, of that because you're right. I mean, we have to eat. We have to eat, we have to drink, we have to breathe. Three fundamental things we all have to do every day, certainly meant to be doing every day. Um, now, in 2019, a United Nations report called on the world to eat less meat in order to help tackle greenhouse gas emissions. Now, I, come at, I say this full disclosure as a, as a beef eater, as someone who eats uh, not a great deal of beef, but as someone who does eat it and does enjoy eating it, uh, probably a little bit too much, which is probably why I've, I've started to eat a little bit less. But the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report noted concerns around uh, you know, beef consumption and, and other animals, including deforestation, 
It's particular, uh, particularly an issue in Brazil. And then emissions. So I have, I have a couple of questions related to this. The first is, you know, should we be eating less beef if we want to live a low or lower emissions lifestyle? And, and, and how much are we talking here? Well, I, I think you really have to address that that question, Dave, from a, a regional perspective. So is, is there areas of the world where we're consuming more meat-based protein than what we require in order to meet our dietary needs? Mm -hmm. The answer to that is yes, there is. And then there are also regions in the world where uh, they're consuming too much plant-based protein and not enough animal-based protein in order to get a properly balanced diet as well. So you, you really have to look at that from a regionally perspective. Now, we, we've heard about, you know, and it's not, you can't only look at one component of the diet, like meat alone. You really, what you know, when you go into the, into the space of human nutrition, you're talking about uh, generating a balanced diet that fully meets the nutrient requirements of whatever individual it is that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And those nutrient requirements will differ amongst individuals as well, right? right. Uh, depending upon whether you're talking about pregnancy or lactation or elderly versus uh, infant, those, those things all change. Body size can affect those nutrient requirements as well. So we, you know, in, in the livestock, it's always kind of, you know, surprised me, like in the, we've been looking at providing livestock with balanced diets since, you know, for probably close to a hundred years now. And, and, and we still don't have that same level of focus in human nutrition, you know, in right. the general population in, in terms of achieving that same level of balance. And it doesn't mean you need to eat the same thing every day either in order to achieve that. We do hear that from the public health agency and that of, about the need for balance and moderation. And, and that's all part of the equation. And so in some cases, that would involve some people eating less meat. Yes, that, that would be correct. But then there's other situations you've also heard too, probably that uh, quite a quite a bit of the health problems we're seeing now and in the developed nations are are coming from the consumption of highly processed foods, which have mm -hmm. tend to have high salt levels or uh, um, you know foods that are very high in sugar content is another one you've probably uh, heard about and and you know there, there there's all part of that within the in the food industry there's practices that are going on, you know, to adjust the flavors in a manner that encourages intake by individuals. And in some cases, uh, depending on the individual you're talking about, that intake may be in excess of, of whatever nutrient it is that they actually require. And, you know, any consuming any nutrient in levels that are above that, that is required to maintain proper health and, 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 uh, and, and uh, quality of life, then that can lead to uh, health consequences, negative health consequences as a result of that. Yeah, I've started paying attention to nutrition labels recently because I'm starting to get old. I sort of have reached that point in my life where you know, I have to start paying attention to things I didn't have to pay attention to for a very long time. And I've sort of put my doctors like, okay, it's time. You know, it's time to it's time to start reading these labels. And so I started doing that. And actually, you know, this might sound silly, but I was utterly stunned by what you see when you start looking at the labels on things like you know this meal is going to provide 64 percent of your daily re recommended intake of sodium yeah know? yeah exactly like, i'm just i'm just eating a you know this prepared meal that i think of as healthy and it's utterly stunning I, this is sort of beside the point but but yeah i mean it's such an important point that 
And you really need to apply that to all, all nutrients you're talking about. Like is, is salt always bad for you? No, it's not. Like you do have a certain amount of requirement for sodium chloride. And if you're right. not meeting that, you're going to be having uh, problems as a result of that. Same with fat, you know, that you often hear, well, fat's bad for you, but no, there's actually, you know, when we talk about essential fatty acids, there's mm -hmm. some fatty acids that we, we can't even synthesize ourselves. We can only obtain them from the diet. So in that case, a certain amount of fat in our diet is absolutely essential. So you, you need to take that, you know, it's not simple. That's, that's, it does take, and I think that's part of the, you know, we balance the diet for our livestock and we feed them that diet. That's what we present them with it. That's, that's not uh, how it happens with, with the human side of the population. Public health agency can make recommendations of the type of diets that you eat in that, but that doesn't mean that people necessarily follow those recommendations. Right. So, right. And it's not simple. I mean, I think, I think that point is, is critical. It's not simple. And we don't really think about it. And it's one thing to, for instance, have you know calorie counts on foods you now at restaurants, and, and that helps certainly. But we don't have the same nutritional breakdown that you have. You see a calorie yeah. count, you say, "Oh, I need low calories," but you don't know really what you're getting necessarily. And 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 it gets complicated. Like you know, if we take the protein area for example, uh, typically livestock protein will have a more favorable amino acid profile than what a plant-based protein will. Right. Uh, if, if you're careful about what you eat, is it possible to eat different plant sources and still meet those amino acids, uh, essential amino acid requirements? Yes, it is. But then you've got to pay more, more, uh, attention to the, the type of plant products that you're consuming. Eh? So, yeah, I, I think the point that, you know, again, that it takes work and time to do it and not everyone necessarily has that. I mean, it's, it's more difficult for some than others. It's, you know, it's funny because, you know, that we have hard caps on say cholesterol and sodium intake and how much you're supposed to be eating. But if you're an adult who burns a lot of calories, you know, I burn a lot of calories. I'm 6'1", about 190 pounds, and I'm out and about. That requires a lot of calories to keep the fuel running, uh, to keep the machine running. And I started to get this point, like, well, what do I eat now? What? Yeah. <laughs> Just buckets of rice? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you if you take, you know, if you go to elite performance athletes, if you put a standard person on a diet like that, they would almost invariably have problems with obesity in a very short period yeah, of time. Yeah, right. 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 So. Well, I, I want to get into some of the implications of, of not just what we're eating, but you know where it comes from. You mentioned that the beef profile, the cattle profile in Canada is different than than elsewhere. I brought up Brazil earlier, where the cattle industry is, uh, you know, deeply problematic compared to say the Canadian industry. And uh, you know, can we ensure that the beef that we consume, the cattle we uh, we consume in this country, is isn't harmful to say biodiversity or, or has a low carbon footprint? I mean, is, is it as simple as saying, okay, well, I'm going to eat Canadian beef? Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why we have a, such a low carbon footprint is because of the diversity of the beef cattle production system that we have. So our system makes use of extensive rangelands and natural grasslands. And that's where primarily the cow-calf sector, that, that portion of the production cycle is maintained on those native grasslands. Uh, and, and then we also have the intensive feedlot sector where we feed those higher grain diets uh, and achieve uh, very short duration times to finishing. You know, typically animals are, are ready for processing in a slaughter plant within 15 to 18 months of age. Uh, which is much shorter in time than what you would typically see if the animal was maintained entirely in a more extensive grazing situation like you might have in the outback of Australia or even in regions of the Soreto in, in Brazil. Uh, those animals, well, some of them, depending again on the quality of the forage that they have available, can be 
two to three years old before they're ready for processing. So that means they've emitted those greenhouse gases. They've used water and land for that much longer period of time than we do with an animal that's ready for processing within, within eight, 15 to 18 months. And when you go, you know, globally, the most efficient systems are the ones that mimic that, that kind of approach where you've got that combination of both extensive and intensive uh, production systems. But even within that, uh, production system then again it gets back to the trade-offs we were talking about so uh, cattle out on a, an extensive rangeland will produce more methane per unit of feed consumed or per kilogram of meat produced uh, just because the forage is not as energy dense as cereal grains are uh, so it takes the animals longer time to reach that same rate of gain and they typically won't deposit as much fat either because of that energy density not being as high as what it is for a grain-based diet but at the extent at the same time then many of those land areas of which those animals are sustained on are not suitable for crop production they may not have the proper topography you know so if you were to cultivate up those lands they could be uh, heavily subject to either wind or or water erosion uh they also may not have sufficient moisture you know they're not they're not suitable to lending themselves to irrigation because of the altitude differences in the topography again and the cost with trying to pump water up some of the hills which you're, we were talking about which you may be maintaining in grasslands and then they do contribute hugely to biodiversity uh we you know you, you alluded to the rainforest as being an endangered area uh, globally, in, in fact, the, the native grasslands of North America are more endangered than the Amazon rainforest is in terms of the total hmm. amount of that's been converted to cropland uh, pre-European times. So, and and when we look at many of, of in, in Canada's case, most of our uh, most prominent species at risk are maintained within those grassland ecosystems and and are very sensitive areas because of of the conversion land conversion of the vast tracks that have taken place for for crop production or urbanization or or road building and, and other anthropomorphic activities so th that's where the, we really do need that extensive thing to maintain those 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 types of ecosystems that support that 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 wildlife and and beef cattle producers do manage vast tracts of those lands whether through direct or ownership or or through uh grazing lease communities that uh, those lands will be set aside for that purpose. And then the other thing we need to think about is from the food security perspective, those lands are not really suitable for food production through cultivation, et cetera. Uh, mm -hmm. And the only way we can produce food then from those lands is through the use of ruminants and the ability to use those native grasslands uh, to, to produce beef. And, and it's not a stretch because basically what those cattle are doing are replacing the keystone species that was there, which would be the, the, the bison or the, or the plains buffalo uh, that occupied those same ecosystems prior to uh, the introduction of the cattle and, and the loss that they had uh, in, in the 19th century. So this was a point I was skeptical about when I initially heard it. I said, you know, that while the cattle are essential to the ecosystem and part of the reason we want them, I said, well, you know, that sounds like an industry talking point. But then I dug into it and I listened to you and, and I think it's a point that we don't fully appreciate. It's a point that's fairly easy to dismiss until you, you know, come to understand it. And it's something I'm becoming more sympathetic to the more that I learn about it. So I'm a little bit, I'd like to chase it down a little bit more accordingly. So when we talk about cattle as being, in fact, important for biodiversity, 
uh, and having a net benefit, what specifically are we talking about? What is it about having cattle in these lands that produces the sort of biodiversity that we want to have and protect? Well, there's there's a multitude of factors that they would contribute, to, uh, you know, and 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 it really relates to the fact that going back to them replacing the role of the bison and obviously that evolution between the bison and the grassland ecosystem occurred over millennia right so so you've got cattle replacing that so the, the types of roles they would play uh in the act of grazing and herbivory of the vegetation itself that can help stimulate plant growth uh and and adaptation it can also uh uh, assist with root depth so you get greater root depth under uh, grazing conditions as well it can alter the sward height which then can affect uh, the nesting sites for bird species for example depending upon the nature of the grassland birds some prefer shorter grasslands some prefer uh, moderate height and some prefer prefer uh, taller grasses and that will affect the nature of the habitat that the birds uh, can can reproduce in in terms of nestling and, and and things like that as well same with some of the rodents when you talk about the richardson ground squirrel and other rodents that uh, occupy them and then of course those those then can uh, serve as prey for uh, carnivores like the black-footed ferret which is one of the more rare uh, in, you know, endangered species within that within that ecosystem. What really, you know, when when you go to look at what's responsible for, you know, breaking up and disturbing biodiversity, it's really related to land use change. So, mm -hmm. in the case of the Amazon rainforest, you're talking about the removal of the trees and and the impact that had that has in changing the hydrology and carbon flows and other greenhouse gas flows as well. It's just a huge disruptive force, right? And, and the same thing happens with the grassland ecosystem. So land use change through cultivation. That's the first thing that will happen is that when you cultivate up those grasslands, they store vast amounts of carbon in the root systems of those plants right. and, 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 and the residue that's on the surface. And when you cultivate that land up, you're guaranteed that you'll cause massive emissions of carbon as a result of that cultivation. Now, when we talk about restoring carbon in many of our cultivated lands, we're really talking about trying to move that carbon level back to what it was before we disturbed it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, the more you've damaged it, the greater the amount of return you can make towards that initial pristine state, right? But you're never going to achieve that full pristine state that it was when it was native grasslands. You're always trying to get closer to it, but you're never going to recover all the carbon uh, through that procedure that was there in the original grasslands before that disturbance took place. And and just going back to the rainforest, we we did some uh, in our cows on the planet podcast. We did some investigating into that as well. And even that, you know, cows are often held up as the causative agent for destruction of the rainforest. And when we looked into that and dug into it deeper, it's a lot more complicated than that. A lot of it, it's a series of events that take place. Cattle are part of that series of events that lead to deforestation. Uh, but I wouldn't call them as the primary causative agent. Really, you know, a lot of these things go back to humanity and humanity's actions. So that process starts with the illegal logging of the high value trees to start out with. And then once they've removed those trees, then they 
they'll put cattle into that environment and remove the other trees because by occupying that land as farmland, it's sort of like the homesteading that we used to have here in Western Canada. If you can justify utilizing that land and deriving value from it, then you become an ownership of that land. So if they didn't put cattle out there and say they're farming it, they wouldn't gain ownership of the land that they're occupying. So the cattle are a tool in order to do that. Once the cattle have achieved that, then they deforest the whole entire thing. And they often, if it's suitable in terms of agriculture practice, they'll, practice, they'll plant it back to higher value soybean and crops uh, for which they can derive more money. And we have the same thing still going on in Canada today. We still have grassland conversion occurring in Canada. And, you know, that could quite easily even increase more as we get to the situation where people can derive a lot more money off the land by growing cultivated crops and selling them in uh, for human consumption, as opposed to maintaining the native grasslands and just grazing cattle on those. You're, you're not going to make a lot of money from cattle doing that, you know, because like I said, the productivity on those rangelands are relatively low in terms of how much the animals gain per day. They can gain a lot more in a feedlot than they can out on a grassland system. Uh, and, and so there is already that kind of economic pressure to encourage people to convert those grasslands into croplands if they can derive more value per acre out of that land by growing crops than they can by grazing beef. Uh, do you, what's the the breakdown of, of you know, grazelands versus um, feedlots for cattle cross-country? Well, the, feed, the feedlots are concentrated out here, in, you know, primarily in the West. There is some in Ontario as well. But our feedlots are quite a bit larger. Like it, it, we'll have feedlots. I think the largest one in, in, in Alberta is around 70,000 head of cattle on site. Uh, so the, the number of animals, if, if we were to switch now with the amount of beef we produce in Canada and remove the feedlot from the system, we would not be able to produce the same amount of beef as we can right. today. So there's not a sufficient grassland to turn all the cattle and the feedlots out into that grassland and maintain them out in those grassland ecosystems. There's not enough of that land to do that today as it stands in Canada. And when you get up into the, like the boreal forests and other areas, then or or the the, the shield areas, like the the level of grazing there, the the amount of stocking density you can have is very low because there's mm -hmm. not a lot there that the animals can consume. When you were speaking, I was thinking of such an elementary point, but such an important one to remember that, you know, we live in an ecosystem, which we forget, you know, we have certain needs that we want to pursue, uh, but we forget that those needs have to hang in balance with, with other needs, like, say, having biodiversity. And we were talking about, you know, reclaiming, uh, I was thinking about um, wetlands, which are an extraordinarily endangered area that we continue to encroach on and destroy ecosystems because we want to develop. And of course, that has a uh, wretched knock-on effect um, you know, it strikes me that the grasslands are are similar to that. Then, yeah. So we 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 main you know for the most part the the wetland systems are maintained within those native grassland areas, both as a water source for the animals, uh, as a primary area. But there's a lot of collaborative relationships, like with the World Wildlife Fund, uh, Ducks Unlimited. Uh, the Nature Conservancy of Canada. There's a lot of steps being taken because that, you know, the, the sensitivity of that native grassland and its value from a, 
the perspective of an ecosystem that needs to be maintained is being recognized by multiple organizations. Mm -hmm. And and I I would say that, you know, in the past, if we went back like 30 years ago or so, 25 years ago, a lot of those uh, organizations would be at loggerheads with the beef industry. But if you look at where they are now, they're sitting around the same table, you know, discussing strategies of of how to deal with these challenges and and how to sustain those those environments. And you know, it's like anything else; it's a it's a two way learning street. There, like, if you ask me, like, can you un you know run cattle on a grassland ecosystem to the in a manner that would be damaging to that ecosystem? Well, the answer to that is yes, you can, you know, like through overgrazing or uh, improper management practices that could lead to those kinds of problems and too much pressure on the land. And and, and so that's the same sort of thing that we're we're looking at um, for, for those groups working together, providing expertise around that table so that both groups can learn from the practices and and the same goes for the those other organizations. They learn from the challenges that the beef industry is is facing as well. A good example would be uh, during drought, um, the challenges of managing under drought conditions where you've got to either reduce the amount of stocking or move animals to other lands. All of which will put economic pressure on the producer as to how they're going to be able to manage that and still remain economically viable under those challenging conditions. I want I want to close out in the last um, you know ten or twelve minutes here on on you know alternatives or complements uh, to traditional meat. I'm thinking both about sort of plant based meat and and cell cultivated meat. Yeah, and uh, something that uh, I, I guess you know probably in the public we kind of lump them all in together. There's meat and then there's meat that comes from somewhere else, either a plant or a lab. But there seems to be sort of different sorts here. Can you get into a little bit about the different sorts of, of meat alternatives or complements and how they fit into this picture, especially related to, to GHD uh, emissions? Yeah, sure. So so it gets back to when we're talking about protein, we need protein in our diets. And that protein can come from plant-based sources and it can come from animal-based sources as well. The nature of the production of that protein, obviously, we've got extensive livestock systems that are already producing animal protein as we speak. And the plant-based protein is is ready to go as well. We've been producing lentils and peas and beans for a, for a long time, not always from the perspective of attempting to mimic meat uh, by a formulation process, which is uh, what we're hearing a lot about now. You know, that that formulation process will not change the nutritional quality of of those peas or lentils or, or, or beans, you don't need to make it taste like meat to, to take advantage of the nutrition that those can offer, right? Depending upon how you fractionate it, et cetera, in, in terms of how, how you utilize those. And of course, those are uh, really important protein sources and more so in some regions of the world than others. For example, India makes us extensive use of lentils as just a an example, that's kind of a different process than the whole lab-grown meat side of things, which at this point is really not at a level that's ready for scale up into an industrial setting. Um, I see a lot of challenges associated with that process in terms of uh, the complexity of the science to get those cells to grow continuously. Uh, really, you'll notice that most of the, at this point, the products that are produced have the consistency of ground beef or uh, or chicken uh, nuggets, that type of consistency. That's because they can't get the cells to grow into a 
a culture in a manner that produces a structural similarity to a stake right. or, or that kind of thing. The other thing is like the, the sheer volume of the factories that you would require in order to produce that much meat uh, would be a huge challenge. The energy that would be associated with heating the vats and all that that would be required to maintain proper temperature, uh, the levels of uh, uh, risks of potential contamination with bacteria, food safety types of issues, because we work with those kinds of cultures in the lab when we're doing cell cultures. And one of the biggest challenges we have is contamination with bacteria because that media is just perfect to also support the growth of bacteria and they'll outcompete the, the cells you're trying to culture. So I see a lot of challenges. There's a lot of good science that's being done there. A lot of it uh, has been anchored in regenerative medicine. So when you're talking about generating organs for organ transplants and those kinds of things, that's where, you know, prior to the, to the lab growing meat, that's where most of the money was going for research in that area. And, and uh, lots to learn about growth factors and the regulation around that, you know, how cells assemble and, and all of that. So I don't think like the, the, the livestock industry is not against alternative uh, protein sources, because when you look at the projections of the growth of the human population and what the demand for protein is, and with some of the constraints that you mentioned as well, in terms of our ability to, to establish the livestock uh, uh, or expand the livestock population to which there is limits, uh, we're going to need more protein than what we can produce from livestock and, and, and potentially even what we can produce from plants. So there could be some value in looking at these alternative practices as well, just so that we can ensure food security and we'll meet the uh, future protein requirements of the human population. And, and I mean, are you optimistic we're going to get there? I mean, you've mentioned that the scale is an issue right now alongside technological developments. It strikes me that this is not, you know, dissimilar to the climate change challenges is that right now we face challenges of scale. We face challenges of, of technical capacity. Uh, you know, are we getting closer well, there's there's definitely been progress made. They're like they said, they're a long ways away yet from being able to produce anything that would resemble a steak. Um, and then, you know, the, even when you look at the uh, life cycle analysis of those systems, if they're going to be, you know, more favorable from a greenhouse gas perspective, we definitely are going to have to have a lot of renewable energy. You know, just like we need to uh, move towards electric cars or rely on either solar or uh, wind generation or uh, uh, water through through the hydro hydroelectricity, which is you know when we look at it, the whole uh, greenhouse gas production and really involves that transition away from fossil fuels. If if we look at even when we talk about cattle and we talk about the methane they produce, that methane although it's the same molecule as what comes from the fossil fuel industry its origin was quite different right that methane that carbon in the methane was previously the grass that was growing in the field when the animal consumes the grass the, the that grass is broken down like i described by the microbes in the rumen carbon dioxide is a released from that which then those methanogens used to combine uh with the carbon dioxide to perform the methane then that methane is released into the atmosphere so that carbon in the methane came from the grass so that was carbon that was already in the atmosphere that's different than the methane that comes from the fossil fuel that methane was trapped down in a store in the ground and now we've released it and it's now going back and could increasing the level of carbon in the atmosphere the methane from the cattle are not increasing the level of carbon in the atmosphere 
So that's that's a big difference. And if we're if we're going to deal if we, if we were if we hadn't used fossil fuels, we would not be talking about climate change today. Even despite right. having ruminants, you know, ruminants were on uh, the face of the earth. If you look at them, they're they're actually a very interesting mammal because if you, they're one of the few that's occupied pretty well every single climate there is on the face of the earth, all the way from the Arctic to the tropical areas. You know, naturally they 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 adapt to those areas. So they're a very you know well evolved animal, partly because of that symbiotic relationship I described between the host animal and that microbial population that it harbors in the rumen. There's an entirely different future podcast on how all of these things hang together. And I kind of, uh, it makes me think of my, one of my favorite quotations from, from the American naturalist, John Muir, you know, whenever he said something to the effect of whenever you try to pick up, pick out something uh, in the universe, you find it hitched to everything else. Yes. Uh, those connections. <laughs> definitely. And, you know, listening Are to you there? talk about this, uh, that's sort of what I kept thinking that it's all hitched together. But now, of course, the challenge for us is that we've we've started intervening in different ways and in, in different ecosystems and different um, you know uh, social, political, economic, and environmental systems. And now we've got to find a way to make it all hang together through through design rather than just through evolution. And it seems to me that seems is the ultimate challenge for us is getting these systems designed in ways that hang together. Yes, and, and in a much shorter period of time than what's typically in an evolutionary scale. Right. We've got our work cut out for us. Yes, definitely. And and we need to, you know, and we need to look at the whole system as a, as a whole. Agriculture's got its part, and agriculture's got improvements that it can do in terms of reducing emissions. But we need to look at other factors like urbanization, urban sprawl, the conversion of, you know, many of those cities are established in our most valuable areas of agricultural land. And when you convert uh, that land to a parking lot, it doesn't produce any feed or food, yeah. and it doesn't sequester any greenhouse gases either. So, you know, we, we have to recognize that as well and steps that we can do to reduce that. And, it, you know, we don't want to be going back to a time where we're looking at our idea of, of rejuvenation or regeneration involves breaking up, you know, parking lots so we can try to put them back into arable land so that we can use it to produce the food that we require in order to meet the food security of humanity. It makes me think of, of one of my favorite songs is, uh, is a talking head song called nothing but flowers. It's sort of an ironic song that, uh, that I highly, if people know it, I highly recommend it, you know, where David Byrne is talking about, um, how we, you know, there used to be a factory here. Now there's just mountains and rivers. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there used to be a shopping mall. Now it's now it's all covered with flowers. You know, um, yeah, ironic pastoral look, and then but but there's something to it. Well, and that's the the other thing I I also think is interesting about that is if we look at even with the what we saw with COVID nineteen, and there was a lot of articles about uh, wildlife becoming urbanized, right, moving into urbanized areas mm -hmm. and that, and whenever people you know, were less dense or less occupying a, a given region, quickly the wildlife would start to move in. And then, of course, the probably the poster child example of that is Chernobyl, you know, where it was a, abandoned and, and the wildlife have moved back in there. So basically, you know, I kind of think it gets down to that if we don't take care of things uh, so that humanity can be sustained, the humanity won't be sustained, but other things will fill the gap. So it's up to us to make the changes and 
and you know take that the the whole systems approach seriously and recognize those trade-offs and try to to na- basically navigate the best way forward uh, to deal with climate change well I, I think that's a fantastic note on which to end that brings us to time well thank you very much for joining me today for this, for this discussion it was extraordinary I didn't know how deeply interested I would become in this, but the more I learn about it, the more I am captivated by it. So I appreciate you coming on and, and explaining it today. It's certainly something I'm gonna be thinking about uh, as I walk around town and as I prepare my next meal. So I appreciate that, thank you. No problem. And so my thanks to you, and as always, my thanks to Carolyn Smith, uh, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jarrah, who make the show not just possible, but far better than it would be without them. And as always, thanks to you, the listeners who join us week in, week out. I hope this episode has left you with something to think about in terms of our ecosystems, how everything hangs together and your next meal. And I hope you are getting a nicely, a proper balanced diet, which is something I need to think about more. I think a lot we of us need to think about a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> well, so uh, we've done a public service here one way or the other. Thanks again. <laughs> and uh, we'll see everyone back here in a couple of weeks. Thanks a lot, David.